Amazing Acts. That is the title that we're using for this summer series as we look at a number of amazing stories from the book of Acts. Acts, as you probably know already, was written by Luke as a sequel to his gospel. It tells about the miraculous things that happened in the early church following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus as the good news of Jesus Christ spread like wildfire across the world. Now, if you ask me, the Acts of the Apostles seems like a rather lackluster title for a book so filled with exciting stories of supernatural power. Last week in the traditional services, I suggested that the book, the book really should have a catchier title, like The Miraculous Power of the Holy Spirit Unleashed on the World. They didn't go for that. I can tell you're not going for it either. So amazing acts it is. When you think about some of the amazing things that the, fo the early followers of Jesus did that helped to spread the word, perhaps one of the most powerful witnesses to the truth of the gospel was their willingness to put their very lives on the line. Jesus had told his disciples that they would be persecuted just as he was. He told them, you must take up your cross. He told them, you must be willing to lose life in order to gain life. That's all well and good in the hypothetical. If you ask me, hypothetically, am I willing to die for Jesus? Of course. But when the opportunity to do so actually presents itself, well, that might be a different story. You remember how Peter at the Last Supper, told Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. That was hypothetical. It's easy to say that when you don't expect it's going to come to that. Peter didn't think that it would really come to that. But just a few hours later, there was Peter in the courtyard next to the fire, cursing and saying, I tell you, I don't know the man. Truth be told, I don't expect that I'm ever going to be asked to literally die for my faith. So it's easy for me to say that I would be willing to, if necessary. For the early Christians, being put to death for their faith in Jesus was a distinct possibility. And in the book of Acts, the believers in Jesus never run from that possibility. They never shirk their responsibility. They continue to stand up and testify that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ, even in the face of those who had the power to kill them for it and the inclination to do so. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he preached the truth of Jesus to a crowd of thousands, including some of the very people who had killed Jesus. Following the healing of the man at the temple, the story that we heard in worship last week, Peter again preached the truth and the power of Jesus. Because of that, he and John were locked up in prison by the same Jewish leaders who had organized Jesus' death. They ordered them to stop preaching about Jesus, to which Peter replied, we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. Think about that. How often do we shy away from talking about Jesus to someone who maybe doesn't share the same beliefs as us because, well... It might make them uncomfortable, or they might judge us for our beliefs, or, or they might think that we're being too pushy about our faith. 
Peter was being confronted by the very person who had arranged Jesus' death. The authorities told him directly, you better stop talking about Jesus. And Peter said, I can't help it. I can't stop. When you have been convinced that Jesus is the way and the only way to salvation, you can't just sit on that information, no matter the possible consequences. Peter's life was spared, at least at that moment. God still had a lot more for Peter to do. But it wouldn't be long before Christians did start getting killed for their faith. Stephen is considered the first Christian martyr. His death is recorded at the end of Acts chapter 7. Here's what it says, Acts 7 verses 54 through 60. When they heard these things, they became enraged and grounded their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. There is a lot to Stephen's story before that moment of reckoning. Understanding who Stephen was and how he got into this position of being the first Christian martyr, I think, makes his witness even more powerful. Stephen was not one of the original disciples. He was not an apostle. He was not a, a preacher or a pastor. Stephen was the director of the food pantry. Allow me to explain. It all began with uh, a church conflict. Now, I know it's hard for you to believe there could be conflict in a church, but hang with me, it's true. Acts chapter 6 tells about what might have been the first church argument, or at least the, the first one recorded in the Bible anyway, and the argument was about food. Now, we Methodists take our food seriously, but they were actually having a church fight about food. Well, it wasn't just about food. It was also about cultural issues and discrimination, isn't it always? Here's how the beginning of Acts chapter 6 describes this situation. In Acts 6, 1 through 4, it says, Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. It was an argument between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. What does that mean? Well, the Jews at that time made a distinction between those who grew up in the Holy Land and those who didn't. Those who grew up in the Holy Land were raised speaking Hebrew. 
Most of them spoke other languages too, but Hebrew was their native language. They read the scriptures in Hebrew. They worshiped in Hebrew. They conversed with other Jews in Hebrew. But there were plenty of Jews in those days who did not grow up in the Holy Land and for, who, for whom Hebrew was not their native language. You remember from Acts 2, the, the passage about Pentecost, there were Jews from every other nation who spoke every other language. That's why the Holy Spirit caused the believers to speak in all these different languages, because those other Jews didn't speak Hebrew. They did all speak Greek. Regardless of what was their native tongue, everybody spoke Greek. Greek language and culture had pervaded that entire part of the world for centuries. Even though Rome was now in power, the culture was still Greek or Hellenist. Hellenist Jews were Jewish people who were raised outside the Holy Land and were therefore more Greek in their customs and practices and language than they were Hebrew. As you can imagine, anytime there is this kind of cultural division, it can easily become a stick sticking point, and so it was for them. The Jews who were thoroughly Hebrew in language and culture sort of considered themselves more Jewish than those who were more Hellenist in language and culture. And as the early church grew from Jews who were both Hellenist and Hebrew, that remnant of discrimination sort of seeped into the church. The Hellenists complained that their widows were getting overlooked in the food distribution. The early chapters of Acts talk about how the believers shared all things in common and they all took care of one another. And as a part of that, the widows relied on the church for their food. The Hellenists were accusing the Hebrews of discrimination when it came to the distribution of food. You church leaders, all of whom were Hebrew, by the way, you're taking care of your own and leaving us out. You're giving plenty of food to the Hebrew widows and not enough to the Hellenist widows. Now, had I been one of the apostles and had that accusation thrown at me, I'm not sure how I would have handled it. I probably would have been offended at being accused of discrimination. I'm sure I would have been disheartened knowing that my leadership wasn't good enough for some. I might have been tempted to get defensive and point out that I didn't choose to be in this position. God chose me. Jesus himself put me here. How dare you criticize one whom God has ordained? Good thing I wasn't one of the apostles. You already heard in what I read from Acts 6 how the apostles responded. If they were offended or disheartened at all, they certainly didn't show it. There was no hint of defensiveness in their response. Instead, they said to the ones who were complaining, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task. The apostles acknowledged that they couldn't do it all by themselves. Now, admittedly, when they say, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables, I can't help but hear that as, why are you bothering us about this when we have sermons to write? But I think that's more my issue than theirs. They simply acknowledged that they needed help, and they invited help. Watch this now. They invited help 
from among the very people who were pointing out the problem. And to their credits, pay attention to this too, to their credit, the complainers stepped up to the plate. They chose seven men from among themselves. Those seven men are named in verse 5, and all seven of them have Greek names. The apostles, far from being defensive and protective of their leadership, they decided to share leadership with the very people who pointed out the problem. And the ones who pointed out the problem stepped up to take ownership of the solution. Imagine that. Have you ever heard someone say, you know what this church needs? And they go on to say what's lacking and what we ought to be doing as a church. And then you say, that's a great idea. Why don't you get that started? And they say, oh, no, I didn't mean me. I just meant somebody should do it. That wasn't the response in this case. The apostles said, pick seven men from among yourselves to get this going. And the Hellenists said, okay, here they are. Oh, for a church where the complainers responded like that. First among the seven was Stephen. This is where Stephen comes into the story. He was a Hellenist Christian who was selected to make sure that the Hellenist widows received the food that they needed. He was the director of the food pantry. But why... If his primary job was food distribution, why was it so essential to the apostles to select people full of the spirit and of wisdom? Why does someone need to be full of the spirit and of wisdom in order to pass out food? Well, for one thing, the apostles recognize that there are no small tasks when it comes to serving the people of God. Every person matters, and every task is important. That's why they didn't blow off this complaint. They took it seriously, and they responded faithfully. But more than that, I think the apostles recognized that as soon as someone takes a leadership role in service to God, they are going to come up against opposition. This role that, that Stephen and the other six were stepping into, this is widely regarded as the establishment of the office of deacon. When the apostles laid hands on and prayed over these seven men, they were ordaining them as the first deacons of the church. And once someone becomes a minister of the gospel, evil is going to rise up against them and try to shut down their witness. Listen to how that happened with Stephen from Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
They stirred up the people as well as the elders and scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Isn't it a good thing that the early church didn't look at the daily food distribution to widows as just handing out food? Isn't it a good thing that the early church insisted on servant leaders who were filled with the Holy Spirit, who relied on the wisdom of God, who were absolutely devoted to the way of Christ? When opposition arose against Stephen, as it always does against those who strive to serve God, he was able to stand strong in faith because he wasn't just doing a task that needed to be done. He was witnessing to Jesus Christ as the source of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. For those of us who have given our lives over to Christ, there is no task that we can consider insignificant. There is no task that we can look at as just getting the job done. Everything that we do is done as a witness to the new life offered in Jesus Christ. Every time a challenge comes our way, how we respond to that challenge is a test, a test of whether we will continue to witness to Christ or whether we will go our own way. Stephen wasn't called to be a preacher, but he preached one of the longest sermons in the whole Bible. When he was falsely accused of blasphemy by the Jewish council, he didn't shy away or plead ignorance. He didn't say, hey guys, I'm just waiting on tables here. What do I know of messiahs and temples and eternal life? No, he, he responded to the council with boldness, recounting to them how they had continuously broken the promises to God and how God had continually kept his promises to them. Did he really think that his words were going to change anyone's mind? If he had perhaps fought back with weapons rather than words, maybe he might have been able to escape with his life. But then Jesus did say something about those who would seek to save their own lives, didn't he? And he said something too about those who are willing to give up their lives for the sake of the gospel, didn't he? Throughout this passage of scripture, Stephen perfectly emulates the way of Jesus. Like Jesus, he serves the needs of others. Like Jesus, false charges are brought against him. Like Jesus, he continues to speak words of truth. Like Jesus, he refuses to fight his opposition on their terms. As he is being stoned to death, he commends his spirit to Jesus, just as Jesus on the cross commended his spirit to the Father. 
Stephen asks God to forgive those who are killing him. Reminding us of Jesus' own words from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And like Jesus, Stephen is killed. And also like Jesus, Stephen's death is not a shameful tragedy. Instead, it is the most powerful witness imaginable to the truth of the gospel. Just before he was killed, Stephen exclaimed, Look, I can see the heavens opened and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. Even before he left this earth, Stephen could already glimpse paradise. He knew with absolute certainty the one in whom he believed. He trusted with complete abandon the one who is the source of true life and perfect freedom. If we would taste paradise, if we would experience the new and everlasting life that is true life, then we too must be willing to give our all for Christ. Even when that means doing the tasks that no one else wants to do. Even when that means sharing the gospel with those who have their hearts set against it. Even when it means forgiving instead of striking back even when it means offering our very lives so that others might see the truth of Christ in us.